following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What makes life good for the one who lives it? This was a question of uh, one of the first philosophy courses I took at Temple University with a professor who just six weeks ago passed away, and he wrote extensively on this theme. He's my favorite professor, so sorry to read that news this past week as I prepared this sermon. But among the different options that philosophers of this world give to answer this question of what makes life good for the one who lives it are hedonism, that is, the experience of pleasure. Another theory called preferentism, which is a fancy way of saying the satisfaction of our desires. That's what makes life good. And then there's perfectionism, which in philosophical speak is simply the perfection of human nature and the pursuit thereof. That's what makes life good, according to those philosophers. Or perhaps, and this is where my professor landed, the accomplishment or acquisition of certain objective good things. That's another theory that's put out there in the realm of academic philosophy. Perhaps one day you kids will go to college and you'll take a philosophy class and you'll talk about these things. Now, as we come to the ninth and last beatitude this morning, after Christ has put together the profile of the wise disciple in his heavenly kingdom, he as our perfectly wise and good king answers a related question, but a much more pressing question to each of us, and that is, what makes your life worth living? Not what makes life good for the one who lives it generally, but specifically, dear ones, as his disciples, what makes your life worth living? And this is what he says at the end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you whenever people insult you wrongly because of me, whenever people persecute you wrongly because of me, and whenever people say all kinds of evil against you wrongly because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You'll notice the difference in translation there as I, as I repeated the beatitude. In any case, as we saw last week, the people of God as poor, mourning, gentle, hungry for righteousness, merciful, and pure in heart peacemakers will experience persecution. There's no doubt there. It's a certain fact. They will experience some form of persecution in their lives. And to the shock and the surprise of his disciples on that day when he sat down and opened his mouth to teach them, this is Christ's teaching on the life worth living for them and for you and for me. There is no other life worth living. No other life worth living for you or for me, for them certainly, than the life that results in persecution for Christ's sake. You see, the path of human flourishing and spiritual good, that path that Christ is blazing out for his disciples, 
is lined with earthly persecution. This morning, our text shows us this important truth about following Christ. And I'm going to seek to summarize it in this way. Whenever Christ's enemies persecute you for Christ, you suffer with Christ, proving your salvation in Christ. Whenever Christ's enemies persecute you for Christ, you suffer with Christ, proving your salvation in Christ. Our Lord framed the first eight Beatitudes in what we might call an idealized form. He said, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are those. But now he gets personal with his disciples and he says, blessed are you. Literally, blessed are you all, each of you, all of you. As you encounter persecution for the sake of Christ, remember this statement of Christ. Blessed are you. Because whenever Christ's enemies persecute you for Christ and his sake, you suffer with him, proving your salvation then in him. We'll break this down into two parts. First, we'll consider persecution for Christ means suffering with Christ. And then we'll look at suffering with Christ proves your salvation in Christ. See how we break that down. In the first place, persecution for Christ means suffering with Christ. We'll consider the definition of persecution for Christ, and then the certainty of persecution for Christ, and finally, what this tells us, what the message of persecution for Christ is. So first, a definition of persecution for Christ. I didn't give one last week because the text didn't really demand that we do that. I kind of relied on your basic understanding of the word persecution as suffering at the hands of other people. And typically, when we think of persecution, we think of our, perhaps our sister church in Makurdi Benway State in Nigeria, which is under constant threat of physical persecution and harm by the Fulani herdsmen. Perhaps we think of what, hap- what has happened to Christians throughout history, you know, Corey Ten Boom, or Richard Wormbrand, or, um, or the Elliots, or, or other missionaries and faithful ministers of the gospel and Christians who have been put in concentration camps, or killed for their faith, and certainly those who have been martyred. But that's just one species of persecution, and I would, I would hazard this statement that Christ does not have that form of persecution particularly in mind, though certainly he doesn't exclude it. Rather, he's talking about persecution generally. And generally, persecution is an effect of the conflict that inevitably arises when two opposed value systems come into contact with one another. When two opposing, perhaps, world and life views collide in, in, in society, then we see persecution break forth, particularly if there's a power differential. If one value system has more power than the other, what is it going to try to do? Well, those who hold to it are going to try to eradicate argue against, marginalize the other one. It's just a common fact. But persecution for Christ, what Jesus is concerned with in our text this morning is the experience of any verbal, physical, or political attack against Christ's followers due to their loyalty to Christ. That's the definition we're working with today. Persecution for Christ is the experience of any verbal, physical, 
or political attack against Christ's followers due to their loyalty to Christ. We see this illustrated for us in the book of Acts at several places. First, in Acts 17.6, consider the response of the world to the preaching of the gospel in Thessalonica. This is an example of persecution. When they say about the Christians, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Can you think of a more gross mischaracterization of what the proclamation of the gospel is? It's not for the upsetting and destruction of the world, but for the good of the world that Christ sends forth his disciples to preach the gospel. And yet, this is the reception they receive. This slander, this attack. These men have turned the world upside down. No, no, no. The gospel is about turning the world right side up, isn't it? And then Acts 19, verses 23 and 40, we see an interesting observation by the town clerk of Ephesus in response to an angry mob's complaints about Paul and his traveling companions. We see that about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way that was a word for the Christian faith and practice. And then the clerk in Acts 19.40 says to this angry crowd, For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. This man actually gives a sober analysis of the events, that the people of God are being accosted, they're being attacked uh, due to their loyalty to Christ, which is twisted into a mischaracterization as a danger to uh, society. That's really at the heart of persecution for Christ. Persecution for Christ is the, again, the experience of any verbal, physical, or political attack against Christ's followers due to their loyalty to Christ, which is an unjustified attack. That's key to understand. As Jesus says, blessed are you when people say all kinds of evil against you wrongly or falsely because of me. Now, backing up a little bit, we can consider Psalm 71 which records for us, among many other psalms, the lies of those who persecute the follower of God. In verse 11, the psalmist writes, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. And these are the words of the persecutors. They're lying about the faithful. Verse 13 describes these persecutors as those who are adversaries of my soul who seek to injure me. And then verse 24 adds that they are those who seek my hurt. And if we were to go through a survey of all the Psalms, which we don't have time for this morning, we would see similar passages again and again and again of describing persecution as lies told about those who fear God in our context, who follow Christ and are loyal to him for the sake of attacking those people. So that's the definition of persecution. And Christ tells us not only what this persecution is, but that it is certainly going to come. He uses this word whenever or when. Blessed are you when or whenever people insult you, whenever people persecute you, whenever people say all kinds of evil against you wrongly because of me. It's not if, brothers and sisters. It's when it happens. I have a lot of friends who ride motorcycles. I don't do it myself. But they tell me, it's not a matter of if you go down, it's a matter of when you go down. And so they take every 
step they can to prepare for that eventual falling off their motorcycle. And certainly horseback riders do the same thing. That's why they wear protective equipment. They put on thick clothing and they, they get ready for that. And so as Christians then, being told by our Lord and Savior, you will be persecuted. You will face unjustified attacks because of me. What is our responsibility then? It's to prepare ourselves for the eventuality of this. Now contrast this with the earthly favor experienced by those who deny Christ. What can they expect in this world? Well, Jesus says in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So false prophets, they're spoken of well by all men of the world. But true prophets of God, as we saw in our Old Testament reading today, are scorned, are mocked, are rejected by those who reject their Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I wish to illustrate this from Psalm 71. If the Psalms are to be believed at all, the song of the Christian life is indeed a song of persecution. It's a song of suffering in the context of a spiritual conflict between the children of the one true God on one hand and then the devotees, the followers of false gods, on the other hand. The latter have spoken against the former, as we've read in Psalm 71, for just one example among many. And one of the main themes of the Psalms, then, is that of the God-fearers, the follower of Christ's confrontation with hostile enemies both within and without the covenant community. It's another key. We will certainly be persecuted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, but also by the visible church, into which those three forces have made inroads, even in our own day. Christ himself and his life leads the way, doesn't he? He was falsely accused of conspiring against civil and religious leaders and authorities during his earthly ministry. He was condemned for blasphemy and insurrection. And what does he testify of this? And his disciples testify of this in John chapter 2, citing Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me. What did Jesus say? He said, destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of his body, and yet that message, that true message was twisted, was taken, and he was unjustifiably put to death for saying that as people claim that he was seeking to destroy their way of life, to harm society. So Christ leads the way, this way of persecution for us. And he did this for our sakes. We're told just in the next chapter of, of John, and, and this is a bit of a diversion from, my, from the main uh, flow of logic, but I can't not say it. Why did Jesus do this? Because God so loved the world. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Christ suffered and died, going before us not only as a model and an example to us as our leader, but going as our Savior, as the Lamb of the world, slain for sinners, that all those who have faith in him would experience true human flourishing in eternity as they dwell with God. Then the apostles, as Jesus' immediate followers, those who walked with him in his earthly ministry and then went out and planted churches and spread the gospel after he ascended into heaven. 
These earliest disciples suffered great personal loss themselves. And Christ tells them here at the outset of their journey with him that persecution is inevitable. Their letters then are often addressed to those who are dispersed, those who are attacked, those who are hated by the world, and even hated by God's covenant people, the Jews. And they testify that following Christ is costly. These verses, they're worth repeating from last week. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writing to Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be attacked by the enemies of God. And then 1 John 3.13, the beloved disciple himself says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And that hate expresses itself in persecution. So this persecution having been defined as any unjustified attack against the followers of Christ for Christ's sake, and then also set before us as certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, going to happen, we have to consider what this tells us. What is the message of persecution for Christ to his people? Well, it means that you're suffering not apart from him, but you're suffering with him. You see, if you commit a crime, if you go and steal something and you're thrown in jail, you're not persecuted for Christ's sake. You're punished for your crime. But if you're thrown in jail because you won't stop talking about Jesus, because you won't redefine sin to suit the likes and dislikes of the world around you, because you hold fast to the confession of your hope without failing, and you declare that there is only one way of salvation, and there's one King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's Jesus Christ himself. If you're thrown into jail for those reasons, if you're slandered and attacked for those reasons, then, beloved, you're perse- you're, you are persecuted for Christ, and you are suffering not alone, but with him. See, believers, through faith, are united with Christ. And when the world rejects him, when they throw him out, they throw you out along with him. You can't be separated from him. The world rejects all those who are united to him. Our own larger catechism teaches that the members of the invisible church, that is, all those whom God has foreordained from eternity past to be united to Christ, by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. That grace includes our sufferings. And then the next question describes this union which the elect have with Christ as the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling, a work of the Spirit calling you into union with Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, pleading with the Corinthians to live holy lives. He says, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, there's such a thing as a Christian identity. You are identified with Jesus Christ. And so, when you suffer for him, you don't suffer apart from him. Left to your own resources, you suffer with him and he upholds you, dear one. When you're slandered and mocked, even by those who were once your friends, once your co-laborers in the gospel and have turned their back on Jesus Christ and his righteousness, 
You're suffering with Christ himself. What comfort this should bring us. You see, Jesus says later on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, that is the devil, how much more will they malign or hate the members of his household? And Jesus there in that passage describes the inevitability, the reality of the persecution which his disciples will face, that they will face because they identify with him and stand with him. But he, later on, or here in this passage, in verses 24 and 25, he declares himself the master of the house, the master of righteousness, on the front lines with his people, in the jail cell with his people, suffering with them and upholding them. Your union with Christ then, dear believer, in suffering has a direct bearing on your response to suffering of all kinds, but particularly to the suffering of persecution, the suffering of rejection, the suffering of ridicule and reviling, some which you'll even experience in your own houses, perhaps from your own children, dear mothers, as you seek to point them to the way of godliness in Christ Jesus, and they say horrible things to you. Or perhaps from your brothers and your sisters as they mock you for wanting to obey your parents, little ones. Or perhaps you fathers and those of you in the workplace as you seek to maintain faithfulness to God, and even so-called Christian co-workers sneer at you and mock you for your prudishness, as they say. All of this, all of this is done not alone, but with Christ Jesus himself, who suffers with you. Now, the particulars of your response are much more important than the type of suffering you face. So I did want to define it because Christ defines it for us. And so if persecution for Christ means suffering with Christ and not apart from him, then your response must be shaped and governed, must be determined by the conviction that suffering with Christ proves your salvation in Christ. Suffering with Christ proves your salvation with Christ. Again, we'll look at the definition of suffering with Christ in a little bit closer detail, the certainty of suffering with Christ and not apart from him, and then uh, the message of suffering with Christ, what the take-home is for us. First, I want to turn on the high-definition picture of suffering with Christ. Suffering with Christ over against suffering without Christ looks like something. We've already set the parameters for it, but what does it look like? Look at our text. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Suffering with Christ looks like rejoicing in him because you're identified with him where he is and he's in heaven. He stands before God's throne, freely accepted by the Father. Is this not a cause for great rejoicing that we are said to stand with him, to be seated with him in high places, to be identified with him? This is what then allows the apostles who have witnessed him ascending into glory to then rejoice when they're persecuted in Acts 5, 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So that's what being persecuted with Christ, suffering with Christ looks like. It looks like rejoicing in him. 
But he doesn't leave it at that. He describes it, but then he tells us why we rejoice. We don't rejoice because of the suffering itself, in and of itself. It would be madness for you to go out of this place today and to try to find the most hostile group of people and start shouting at them, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, until they hit you or beat you. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. No, he's speaking about endurance. He's not speaking about foolish thrill-seeking or, um, or self-harm. No, the rejoicing comes not because of the suffering, but because of the understanding that this suffering is itself a gift of God's grace, that it's an expression of our union with Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, after speaking about his own imprisonment and his own suffering, and then what the Philippian church is experiencing in persecution, he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that's set right in the midst of all his, his, his very happy letter, calling his people to rejoice at all times. And that's why we rejoice, because we are suffering for his sake. We understand this as a gift of God, affirming certain spiritual truths about our condition and our relationship to God and through Jesus Christ. We rejoice because this suffering is experienced for the sake of Christ. If we were to rejoice at just the suffering itself, seeking after martyrdom as some kind of merit badge, well, we'd be no better than the scribes and the Pharisees, to whom Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. At Greenville Seminary, we have a scholarship named after a missionary to Haiti named Matthew Ball. You see, Matt put himself in a, a fairly rugged country where he had to get around on a motorcycle uh, where you know, it wouldn't be possible to, safely to drive a car and, quite frankly, wasn't very safe on the motorcycle. And one day, not long into his tenure there, living there with his wife and five children, he's riding on his motorcycle, leading a short-term mission trip to the compound, and a van comes out and strikes him, throws him off the motorcycle, and he dies. Now, is this an example of persecution? No, not so much, but it is an example of great suffering. Now, we've honored Matt Baugh at Greenville Seminary. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of which he was a missionary at the time, has honored Matt Baugh. But is that why Matt went to the mission field? To be honored? Well, if that was the case, then he should be pitied above all men. Because there's no good there, no eternal good, no. I believe not knowing, not having known Matt personally, the Pipers have, perhaps others here have met the Ball family. I've met his brother and his, his, uh, his widow who's since remarried and spoken with at least one of his children. And in all those interactions, I'm sure Matt did not go there seeking an honor as a martyr or one who suffered even the expense of his life for going into the field. No, he went there to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he happened then to suffer in that context And so we honor him. My point here is, you don't go looking for suffering, but you go forth proclaiming Jesus, giving glory to God, expecting the suffering to come in one way, shape, or form. And then bearing up under it, rejoicing, rejoicing. 
that you have been found worthy, as it says, to suffer for Christ's name, because you understand this as a gift of God. What does Jesus say to the disciples when they return from a successful mission trip in Luke chapter 10? They come back, they've been casting out demons. Christ says to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning, but then he surprises them and says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in your earthly success. Rather, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your names are recorded in heaven. And if you suffer for Christ, you are suffering with Christ who is in heaven, which means your names are recorded in heaven. It's a proof to you. That's where the rejoicing comes from. Now, this suffering with Christ, it is certain and certainly not apart from him. What I wish to bring out here for you is that this is not a work of your own doing. Simply put, like all the other Beatitudes, this is a supernatural work of God which he shall accomplish in your life, upholding you and sustaining you and preserving you through suffering and persecution because he is committed to your flourishing as a kingdom citizen. He's committed to you being like a tree planted by streams of living water. He's committed to you being like a pillar in the temple of God. He's committed to that which means he will not turn away from it, but rather he will sustain you. Consider the life of the apostle Peter. Peter in John chapter 18, he denies being a follower of Christ. He denies his Lord. He betrays him. But then consider Christ's commitment to him. He says to Peter in John 21, essentially, you are destined to glorify God. This is what he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then John gives this commentary. Now this he said, signifying but what, by what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter's destined for glory. And when he had spoken this, He said to him, Jesus says to this disciple who betrayed him, and yet to whom Christ was committed that he would fulfill his calling to glorify God. He says to him, follow me. Renewing that covenant, as it were, renewing that relationship one with another. There's a certainty of preservation such that then Peter was among those apostles, those disciples who went on their way from the presence of the council, as I've already read, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is where the rubber meets the road, dear ones. We all confess that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I think there's an impulse in American Christianity to put the emphasis on enjoying him in the sense that we understand it as. That is being comfortable, being, feeling fulfilled in all of these things. But the emphasis is on glorifying God, and perhaps even some of us here are called to glorify God from behind bars for our faith, or from upon a cross for our faith, or on death row for our faith, or in persecution for our faith. And if that is the case, then are we still eager and anxious to glorify God? If it means we will be reviled and scorned and hated by the world, 
Are you still willing, interested in glorifying God? You see, he's committed to you. And in glorifying him, you will find fulfillment and joy. But that doesn't mean that it's pleasant in the eyes of the world. And yet, even if we were to die, there is a certainty of preservation. He will uphold us. Let's trust in him and in this word that he gives us. And in this word, this word of certainty of suffering with him, not apart from him, but with his help, there's a a special message here that he adds at the end of these Beatitudes. He says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This isn't just a throw on. It's not just a signal for Pastor Groff in terms of which Old Testament text to select as our second reading. No, this is key to Christ's message in these Beatitudes, and in this one in particular. He says, you stand with the prophets when you suffer for my sake, because they too trusted God. They too believed God. They too taught, as Jeremiah taught, the word of God, and believed and trusted and taught that he has a reward for those who suffer for him. 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16 give that summary um, expression to this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. The certainty is expressed there. This is a summary statement of the prophet's ministry. And if we are being accounted along with the prophets, we can expect the same. And every good Israelite to whom Jesus was speaking knew that the way of the prophets was indeed the way of righteousness. He's tying this into them. Righteous kingdom of heaven living as disciples of Christ involves persecution in solidarity with his servants and with that servant of servants, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the means then, not of gaining merit. No, 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 no. Not of earning a right to stand before God or or earning salvation by no means. But this is the means. This message is the means of motivating your endurance through persecution and suffering. So that when your friend mocks you for being a Christian, or your cousin, or your brother, or your sister, whatever, you can stand up under that and say, I'm standing with Jeremiah, with Moses, with Ezekiel, with Elijah, with Isaiah. I'm standing with Christ, and he's got this. You see how that would motivate you then to bear up under persecution? Let's keep this at the forefront of our mind. Again, we don't seek persecution, but we certainly prefer it to faithlessness. We prefer it to infidelity. We prefer it to forsaking Christ and turning our backs on him. And we do look forward to a reward. Now, there's a mystery here. Again, we're not earning our salvation, but the Bible speaks of a, re- of a particular reward, a crown, in the, a jewel in the crown, so to speak, of those who, are, who suffer for Christ's sake. Hebrews eleven twenty three to 25. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, 
considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And here's the kicker, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Fathers, when you give a reward to your children for a job well done, is it necessarily because they earned it every time? If you tell them to take out the trash, they just have to obey you, and you're their dad. But if they do it faithfully for a while, don't you wish to reward them with something a bit extra? Don't you want to take them out for ice cream? Perhaps you do that in your house. Uh, we do things like that in our house. And I think that is, that's an analogy, at the very least, of what's being spoken of here. It's not that Moses earns salvation. No, he enters into the kingdom through faith alone in Christ alone. But yet he looks forward to the reward which is promised by God's grace. And so we put this clearly, that we don't stand in our merit, but we do, like Christ, lean forward, pursuing the righteousness of God for the reward set before us in glory. Hebrews eleven sixteen summarizes this. Idea, But as it is, they, speaking of faithful, godly fathers and mothers of old, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's a motivating, uh, motivating impulse to be faithful to the Lord even through trial. Because we know that Christ has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill all righteousness, not to abolish righteousness. Returning to the Psalms, this song of persecution that we sing as Christians, it involves lament, certainly. But the primary expression of the Psalms is not so much lament as it is a very virtuous, kind of manly virtue. It expresses a determination, a determined resolve and dependence on God, our supernatural deliverer our supernatural refuge and strength. In Psalm 71, 23, and 24, the psalmist concludes that psalm where he's, he's I've already referenced it, where he's, he's complaining unto God, pleading for help and deliverance from evildoers, and he says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long. And this is the high note of our song as persecuted saints. Rejoicing in the Lord, being glad, rejoicing that he has promised a reward for those who maintain faithfulness. Rejoicing that he reserves for us a heavenly country to which he calls us even now through Christ, our salvation. Christ came to fulfill righteousness, as we'll see in verses and sermons to come, to redeem us from sin and infidelity, as we've already said, and to call us to righteous living for the sake of God's glory. He fulfills righteousness and calls us to righteousness. So, what makes life good for the one who lives it? Or better yet, what makes your life worth living, dear ones? What is your chief interest which overrides or eclipses all other concerns that you may have, legitimate or not? If it is Jesus Christ and his divine righteousness displayed in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven as he proclaims it to you, then your good life will be radically different than what the world, the flesh, and the devil suggest to be the good life. Your good life 
is determined not by outward circumstances. Rather, your good life is determined by spiritual union with Christ, who suffers with you in all your trials and tribulations. And as we've considered today, whenever Christ's enemies persecute you for his sake, for Christ, you suffer with Christ in solidarity with him, not apart from him. Therefore, proving, having a certificate, as it were, of your salvation in him and in him alone. We've defined persecution for Christ. We've considered its certainty and its message for us. Persecution for Christ means suffering with him which means being secure in him. For suffering with Christ then proves your salvation in him. And this too is unshakably certain, dear one. As you go forth from this place, perhaps you'll go to school this week or you'll go into public, the mall or shopping or whatever, or you'll read on the news horrible things that people are saying about Christians. Perhaps horrible things they're saying about you in particular. Well, if they're saying those things because we stand with Jesus Christ, you can be unshakably certain of this, that you are suffering with him, and that this, even this horrible thing that's happening to you, is a proof of your salvation. So you can lay hold of it as a gift from God, and rejoice and be glad that you are being counted worthy to suffer with him for his sake. It will lead you to rejoice even in that moment of great trial as you suffer persecution for his sake. Dear ones, let's stand together for prayer now. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.